Ahoy crew, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Huebner, and today's episode is episode 43, The Delian League, High and Dry in Egypt. Today we are basically just continuing right where we left off last episode. In some ways then, this is almost a part two in conjunction with episode 42, where we saw the conflict between the growing power of the Delian League in the Aegean against the attempts that Persia made to try and blunt or slow that power in the 470s BCE down to the double battle at Eurymedon River, where we saw Simon lead naval and land victories both on the same day that we roughly place in the year 469 BCE. We have already discussed how the Delian League began as an anti-Persian coalition in the Aegean, led by Athens, who stepped in at the request of those many Ionian cities. Over the course of years, the structure of that league led to Athens becoming the hegemon in that entire region, all of course built on the base of their sea power. Some league members began to regret their decision to join, and that is if they even were given that option. Some of them were just forced in. This tone, generally speaking, increased after Persia was severely defeated at Eurymedon, because after that defeat, the clear question became one of why the Delian League was any longer necessary if Persia, which was the whole point of the League forming to begin with, was no longer a true threat. Discontent spread within the League, as we will see even more today, but despite this, Athens was still flush with cash, and they had the large navy that had been built up and was under her control too. Athenian power is what caused Persia to attempt their buildup that we discussed last time, and Athenian power also concerned the Spartans and their allies in the Peloponnese, so it's on that footing that we are going to now jump back into things following the Delian League's victory at Eurymedon. There are really two fronts of war to try and work through for us today, so we will do our best to tackle them both and to keep the threads from becoming tangled, or too tangled. The best way to do that, in my mind, is to just tackle them in order. So, let's begin with what scholars officially call the First Peloponnesian War. Given that the overall Peloponnesian War as a whole is one of the most deeply studied wars of all history, there is a whole lot that we are just going to skip right on past in this podcast. The politics and the diplomacy in particular, but much else beside, they just don't have that direct of a connection to maritime history, and they'd be far too burdensome to try and even summarize. Really, I think broad strokes are going to help us get a framework in place, and then we will focus on the maritime and naval specifics as those pop up. Following Eurymedon and the battle there, one political shift that occurred was that Simon fell out of favor in Athens. Pericles became the rising star, and as he assumed a position of power, he was able to institute some democratic reform in Athens, reforms that were brought about partially because of the great wealth that the Delian League had funneled back toward Athens. Simon fell out of favor there when the political winds shifted and this was not at all helped by the fact that he had a reputation as being a bit of a Spartan sympathizer. He was reputed to appreciate Sparta's, well, Spartan culture, to reduce it to the modern shorthand. Simon then suffered the same fate that Themistocles and others before him had suffered. In 461 BCE, he was ostracized from the city. The other leading democratic leader in Athens was a man named Ephialtes, and he was murdered in the same year. So with both of these other leading men off the scene, Pericles assumed a pretty sole leading role in Athens in 461. 
Now, one event that had occurred in the years prior to this leadership change involved yet another rebellious Delian League member, but this one had the unfortunate added element of Sparta becoming roped into things too. And that is an element that wasn't really in the mix during all of the events that we talked about last episode. In 465 BCE, Athens founded a colony called Amphipolis on the Streamon River in generally what we can call Thrace. It's on the far northern coast of the Aegean Sea, although it's in modern Greece as it's defined today. The island of Thassos is in this same general vicinity of the northern Aegean, so when Athens decided to set up a colony in the neighborhood, Thassos became concerned that Athens seemed to be encroaching on her personal interests in the gold and the silver mines that dotted the mountain range in the region where Thassos was. Thassos was a member of the Delian League, formally speaking, but in 465, with Athens encroaching, she took the drastic step of going to request direct assistance from Sparta, all with the hope that this would discourage Athens from getting too involved in the region. Sparta had to decline the offer, although maybe they were disappointed that they had to do so. The reality is they were busy back at home, dealing with what was up to that point the largest revolt of her helot population that had ever occurred. A devastating earthquake had hit the region there and effectively flattened Sparta, and the slaves seized the chance to try and break free. As a side note here, relations between Sparta and Athens were not at all helped when, following the earthquake and during the Helot revolt, Sparta at first requested aid from Athens. Simon was still in power in Athens at this point, so given his Spartan sympathies, he convinced Athens to actually oblige. And once Athens had undertaken the cost and the planning and had marched all the way into Spartan territory, they felt a bit insulted when Sparta just changed their mind at the last second and sent Athens home. Perhaps Sparta feared that Athens would inject their democratic leanings into the situation or something like that. Either way, this whole incident deeply offended Athens, and it was one domino in the chain that led to the ostracism of Simon as well. The broader point is the step that Thassos later took when she asked Sparta to intervene against another Delian League member, simply because Thassos was displeased and was, I mean, let's be honest, the weaker party. The fact that the relations between Athens and Sparta were already a bit strained separately, and then Thassos took this step, it unfolded and introduced just a new level of tension into everyone's relations, basically. As reprisal for Thassos trying to get help from Sparta, Athens and the other participating League members laid siege to Thassos. And this is another example of the Delian League leveling severe punishment on a member that had effectively tried to leave the League. The walls of Thassos were demolished after a two-year siege ended in surrender. Then Thassos had her land, her entire navy, and all of her wealth taken by Athens, and she was humiliated and forced to pay tribute from then on. So, the Siege of Thassos really is a marker in the evolution of the Delian League and its relation to Sparta, too. After the siege was concluded, Athens turned her attention toward planning for potential future conflict with Sparta. Donald Kagan also says that Athens may have, in this time period, been looking for ways to get back at Sparta because of the offended incident where Sparta sent those Athenian troops home. I think Kagan is largely right, though, to say that once the Delian League was formed and began to take off, and once Athens grew so powerful as a result, it seems that war between Athens and their allies against Sparta and her allies, war was almost inevitable at this stage. 
Thucydides as well points to the rapid expansion of Athenian power as being the main cause for the First Peloponnesian War, which is basically to say the same thing. The more direct events that perhaps can be seen as final straws are these, though. After the insult of having their troops sent away from Sparta, and then after punishing Thassos for trying to get Sparta involved in league affairs as Athens saw it, Athens pursued a policy of making alliances with city-states that could be antagonistic towards Sparta. We'll put it that way. It's the old story of alliances shifting and eventually building up to the point where shared alliances lead to war. In short, Athens allied herself with Thessaly, with Argos, and with Megara. Thessaly was perhaps the least incendiary as far as the Spartans were concerned, although Thessaly was still a powerful city-state that could bolster the Athenian naval and military options. Argos, though. Argos had been an enemy of Sparta going back into ancient Greek history, so getting them on Athens' side would clearly be interpreted by Sparta as kind of ramping up the pressure. Argos was also a very close neighbor of Sparta and was located on the Peloponnese, so this is Athens forming an alliance with one of Sparta's closest enemies in the geographic sense. The final alliance here is the most notable for me. This is the one with Megara. Megara had previously been allied with Sparta, and traditionally she had been an enemy of Athens, or at the very least just not on good terms with Athens. But, in this time frame, Megara found herself in a border dispute with Corinth, right in the years prior to 460, and this dispute saw her leave the Peloponnesian League and formally decide to join the Delian League instead. Megara and Corinth both occupied the Isthmus of Corinth, which is that kind of strategic choke point between the Peloponnese and Attica. Possession of the Isthmus, or at least the ability to get a foothold there, it had implications for the naval and the maritime shipping aspects of any maritime powers in this region. When Megara effectively defected from her alliance with Sparta, this gave Athens a huge strategic upper hand in that area, and it obviously also raised the stakes in the growing enmity between the Delian League and the Peloponnesian League, and between Athens and Sparta in particular. The Delian League formally only had obligations as against Persia. That's where the League had its roots. But where the concerns of Athens turned, in time, the League would have little choice but to follow. In the interest of keeping our narrative flowing at a reasonable pace, we'll try to hit the high points of the First Peloponnesian War. I will say before we look at the events in Greece, that the other theater where Athens became embroiled in 460 was all the way down in Egypt. Scholars often question the thinking behind this move from the Athenians, because on its face, it truly does not make sense why Athens would have chosen to deploy significant fleet and force contingents into two widely separated theaters, one being in the Peloponnese and the areas closer to Athens, but the other being first at Cyprus and then into the Nile Delta. We are basically forced to assemble the most logical timeline that we are able to, with fragmentary comments from Thucydides and a handful of other ancient writers. But it does seem that the alliance with Megara had just been made, and that hostilities back in the Peloponnese had not quite taken off yet when in 460 BCE, Athens received a request from Egypt that they may have felt was just too good to pass up. In 460, Athens received an invitation from a man named Inaros. He was a Libyan king who managed to kickstart a rebellion that swept lower Egypt and the Delta. Remember, 
Persia had controlled Egypt going back 60 years or more, back almost to the time of Cyrus the Great. Persia ruled Egypt as she did many other vassal states, through the use of local satraps, but there were other local rulers who also were part of the structure, including Libyan soldiers who came from the Nile Delta region and had old ties to that region and to Egypt far back before Persia's takeover even. Inaros came from that segment of Egyptian rulership, basically. These Libyans had instigated several rebellions during the decades of Persian control. These often happened after Persia's king had died, and there were the obvious periods of transition there. After Darius died, there was a rebellion in Egypt, which his successor Xerxes then had to quell. And then Xerxes himself was assassinated in 465. And after that, Inaros emerged to lead this new uprising in Egypt. It is all in this context, then, that in 460 BCE, Athens received the request from Inaros and the Egyptian rebellion against Persia, asking that Athens send ships and men to help fight Persia. The anti-Persian purpose of the Delian League no doubt influenced their decision to respond. It's likely, too, that the wealth of Egypt, both in goods and in agricultural produce, these had to have also been attractive reasons for Athens to jump into the fray. Still, though, given what we know about the escalating tensions with Sparta, it is a bit odd that Athens would have elected to spread her force so thinly. Maybe the most logical explanation is just that Egyptian involvement against Persia was, formally speaking, that of the Delian League as a whole and all of her member city-states. While the quarrels with Sparta, with Corinth, with Aegina, those that we'll talk about in a moment, these were more on the level of personal issues between Athens and those other city-states. That's a possible explanation. We don't know for certain, though. What we do know is that in 460, the Delian League already had a contingent of 200 ships that were engaged in a campaign off the island of Cyprus, but we don't have too many other details about what they were doing there. In response to the request from Enaros, Athens and the League diverted these 200 ships, and they sailed south to Egypt entering the Nile, and quickly winning a series of victories that gave Athens and the rebel Egyptians control of about two-thirds of the Nile Delta region. That's the calculation or the total that Thucydides gives us. The most noteworthy clash in this early stage occurred at the Battle of Papremis in 460. Here, a land battle was the main focus of events and it saw the Athenian and the rebel army manage to win victory against Persia, despite being pretty heavily outnumbered. There was also a naval side to the battle here, too, and we read that a Greek commander named Keratomides led 40 Greek ships against 50 Persian ships, and Athens managed to win a comprehensive victory, according to an ancient writer named Catesius. He writes that the Greeks captured 20 of Persia's ships and sunk another 30, which is a pretty astounding total. It means that they cleared Persia's map entirely. We don't have any other details, and there are no other sources that back up this portrayal either. So it bears mention that scholars pretty generally and widely view the claims in the writings of Catesius as being surprisingly unreliable. If we're forced to remove his details then from the narrative, we aren't left with a whole lot. Just keep that in mind, I suppose, as we talk about things today, but I will point out if Catesius is the sole source for any fact. Most of the other items we'll discuss are confirmed by Thucydides or by Diodorus. We do know on the basis of all three of these writers that after the Battle of Papremis, things got bogged down in the Egyptian campaign. 
The parts of Persia's army that survived that first battle and remained in the area managed to link up with some loyal Egyptians, and together they found refuge in a citadel in the city of Memphis, a place known, at least as Thucydides tells it to us, as the White Castle. No idea if this place has any ancient connection with sliders or that most famed of fast food establishments with which we American Midwesterners are probably familiar. I kind of doubt there's any association, but in any event. Persia took refuge there in the White Castle, and the Delian League and rebel Egyptians settled in to lay siege. It's from this point forward that the timeline gets a little murky, and it's here, too, that Athens begins fighting almost two wars at one time. So, advance apologies if things get a little hard to follow. Thucydides, as always, is the best framework that we have, so that's where most of the remaining discussion will be based. The best segue to the next phase is one that we can find in Thucydides. He says that after the Persian army had been defeated at Papremis and was then under siege in Memphis, Artaxerxes, the new Persian king, he sent Megabazus to Sparta with money to bribe the Peloponnesians to invade Attica and so draw off the Athenians from Egypt. It seems that Sparta was unwilling to do so, maybe because they already were involved in some hostilities back in Greece, and Sparta just couldn't afford to undertake a full-on invasion of Athens, giving everything else that was unfolding at that time. There may be other reasons, too, that we don't know, but we do read that the Persian king Artaxerxes found no success in attempting this tactic. I do think it's notable still, though, because it's a pretty clear sign that the ancient world was well aware of how strained the relationship between Sparta and Athens had become, and the Persian king must have thought it no trouble to at least see if Sparta would go defeat Athens on his behalf. From here, let's try now to summarize all of these events that were occurring in the Hellenic world, the events which would have kept the attentions of both Athens and Sparta outside of Egypt. The best one-stop example of how far-flung the involvement of the Athenian people was in the year 460-459, this example comes from an inscription that lists those who died from the Athenian tribe of Erechtheus. This inscription was followed by the names of 185 Athenians, all who died in the same year. The inscription reads, quote, Of the tribe of Erechtheus, these men died in the war. In Cyprus, in Egypt, in Phoenicia, in Helaeus, in Argos, on Aegina, at Megara. In the same year. The end there, in the same year, is in all capital letters. So that's definitely the notable part. The other notable part is that oftentimes the deaths of Athenian tribes in uh, wars abroad, these were listed on inscriptions with one tribe following the other. In this case, though, because there are 185 names of Athenians who died just from one tribe, only one tribe makes up this inscription. The point being, there must have been so many deaths spread across all these various theaters that they couldn't fit them on one inscription. We've already seen today how some of these Athenians would have died in Egypt. And although the reference to Phoenicia and any fighting there is a bit mysterious, it isn't mentioned in any other source, it is possible that there was fighting connected with Phoenicia that we just don't know about. Cyprus also was a site of conflict for which we don't have much detail, but what about these others that are listed? Well, the reference to Helaeus is shorthand for a land battle where Athens was defeated by forces from Corinth and Epidaurus. Not much to say about that one, but there was also a naval battle that occurred in this same phase, or Thucydides lumps it together in his narrative anyway. We don't know much else about it, 
other than that Athens won victory at sea against a Peloponnesian fleet off the small island of Kekrophileia. Donald Hagen again sums it up well by just saying, quote, The first battles of this war were ominous. The Athenians lost on the land and won on the sea. And that's really going to be a good theme for us going forward. The naval victory at Kekrephileia only served to anger a perennial enemy of Athens. This is the island of Aegina. They then opted to enter the war in full force, which they hadn't done up to that point. You may recall them in episode discussions past as being an island that had maritime history older than most of the great powers of Greece of that time. And Aegina joined their naval force with the force that the Peloponnesians already had, and this led to a much larger naval confrontation with Athens that occurred off the island of Aegina. We again don't have much detail other than what Thucydides gives us, and in this case he says that, quote, there was a great sea battle off Aegina between the Athenians and the Aegeanetans, each being aided by their allies, in which victory remained with the Athenians, who took seventy of the enemy's ships and landed in the country and commenced a siege. While Athens had Aegina under siege, Sparta tried to then land 300 hoplites on the island to break the siege on behalf of her ally. This attempt was apparently unsuccessful. Aegina was forced to surrender as the siege wound down, and in response Athens did what we've seen her do already. She stripped Aegina of her navy, tore down the city walls, and basically forced them into joining the Delian League and all the tributary requirements that came with that privilege, I guess we could call it. At the same time, Corinth then marched into Megara because she thought Athens was already busy in Aegina and in Egypt, so Corinth was going to try to seize chance to win a self-interested victory closer to home. Another battle ensued, and to go from Thucydides, it sounds like it was a bit inconclusive. We really have just run the whirlwind tour of 460 to 458 BCE or thereabouts. This is all, as I said, coming from Thucydides. So you can get a sense of how many different balls Athens was trying to juggle in various places. I think importantly, too, we can also get a sense of how the alliances at play among all these various players, served to kind of fan the flames of a growing conflict. Now, in the first three years of this war, Sparta really hadn't taken much direct action against Athens. That was partially because Athens had built up a defensive wall across the Isthmus of Corinth, thanks to that alliance that they had concluded with Megara. And this defensive wall hampered Sparta's ability to march over into Attica. The presence of this wall might have been another one of those reasons why Sparta was not persuaded by Persia's attempts to bribe her into action against Athens. We're not sure, though. Now, there are tons of internal politics and other wrinkles connected with Sparta and the campaigns they were involved in, things not as closely linked to the maritime history aspect of Athens, which we need to focus on here. The point that bears making is that in time, Sparta did begin to get more involved directly, such that Athens felt the danger begin to ramp up, we could say. In response, Athens finally undertook construction of the famed long walls that would connect the city of Athens proper with her ports of Piraeus and Phaleron, which were about five or six miles removed down on the coastline. The idea of doing this had been around for a while in Athens, but they never managed to fully build anything that would protect the city until this direct confrontation with Sparta became a more imminent threat. As we definitely know by now, Athens had her eggs pretty fully in the basket of naval power, 
especially compared to the hoplite strength of Sparta. So, the building of these long walls was effectively a way to help Athens withstand any siege that Sparta might later bring. Athens may get surrounded, but as long as a connection to the sea remained, she could come and go and trade as she pleased effectively, always able to replenish the city's food and water needs, too. Construction of the walls was begun at some point in this rough time frame then, and the project here was possible in large part because of the flow of wealth that continued to come to Athens from the Delian League's continuing campaigns in Egypt and elsewhere, not to mention the dues that League members had to contribute each year. Along with the project to build the Long Walls, the years 457 to 454 BCE saw relative success for Athens, although the details again don't much concern us. They involve battles against Sparta, Boeotia, Thebes, Phocis, and Chalcis. These battles were by and large land affairs. Although Athens did use her sea power to sail against some coastal cities of the Peloponnese, Thucydides even alludes to the Athenian navy sailing around and, quote, burning the arsenal of Sparta, which could perhaps refer to them burning Sparta's dockyards. We just don't have enough detail to really get into any depth on these matters, though. The overall theme is that Athens was relatively successful between 457 and 454, managing to repel any Spartan threat, even taking the fight to Spartan home soil, all while winning victories against other Peloponnesian allies. Athens also finished building those long walls, which gave them security predicated on her naval strength. But, at this very point, we now have to turn the page back to events in Egypt, and let's just say that things weren't going quite so swimmingly down there. Thucydides transitions his narrative back to Egypt with this sentence, which I interpret with a slightly ominous tint. He writes, quote, Meanwhile, the Athenians in Egypt and their allies stayed on, and encountered all the vicissitudes of war. A few minutes ago, we left the Athenians and their allies while they still were laying siege to the White Castle in Memphis, where the Persians had taken refuge all the way back in 460 BCE. Thucydides fills in the narrative with a bit of a flashback, to inform us that after Sparta had declined Persia's bribery to march on Athens, Persia then opted to just send a huge army down to Egypt to try and get the job done that way. The timing of everything that comes now is subject to a lot of debate in the academic world. I dredged up at least a dozen journal articles that discuss the Delian League's foray to Egypt and all the debate and details there. We could easily get lost in the weeds if we wanted to. I hope we can avoid that, though. To set the stage for the rest of our analysis today, I wanted to read the entire passage from Thucydides, just because it is always the focal point of any discussion of this whole ordeal. He again writes, quote, Arriving by land, Persia defeated the Egyptians and their allies in a battle, and drove the Hellenes out of Memphis, and at length shut them up in the island of Prosopitis, where Megabazus besieged them for a year and six months. At last, draining the canal of its waters, which he diverted into another channel, he left their ships high and dry, and joined most of the island to the mainland, and then marched over on foot and captured it. Thus, the enterprise of the Hellenes came to ruin after six years of war. I'm pretty confident that Radiohead had not yet released their sophomore album, The Benz, by the time that Thucydides was writing his history of this war. But it was thoughtful of him to sneak in reference to one of the stronger tracks from that album. I will definitely spare you my ham-fisted attempts to work in any more references from their discography through the remainder of the episode today, so you are welcome there. But 
the Greek ships being left high and dry on the banks of a drained canal, it is just the best snapshot picture of how their Egyptian adventure ultimately fell apart. The end outcome and the focal point for everyone who tries to work out a chronology of this whole arm of Greek history and their foray into Egypt, it obviously hinges on the last sentence from Thucydides, where he alludes to six years of war for the Greeks in Egypt. General consensus tends to land on what we've been using today, which is to say that the Greek involvement with the rebellion in Egypt probably began in 460 BCE, just slightly after their first steps to get embroiled with Peloponnesian alliances and all of that that we already discussed. Six years later, then, places the ruinous outcome as unfolding in 454, which again aligns with the good outcomes which they were seeing in Greece at that same time. Questions of timing aside, what actually happened to them in Egypt and what was the significance? That's really what it comes down to. The short version is what Thucydides tells us. It seems that once Persia realized the gravity of the situation, a large army was assembled to go relieve their defeated brethren who were under siege behind the walls of the White Castle. And I'm sorry, I still can't help picturing the modern burger chain. Every time I say that name, I apologize. Here is an interesting question, though. Why did Persia care so much about retaining control of Egypt? As we said earlier, I think a lot of it comes down to the agricultural wealth that flowed out of Egypt and was being taken back into Persia. Although there are also some elements of historical rivalry between Egypt and Mesopotamia that probably are in the mix, and Persia, when her empire, the Achaemenid Empire, swept the region there, she kind of stepped into that role of the Mesopotamian power during her height. So there may have been some just hardwired enmity between them and Egypt. This is all, of course, not to mention, too, Egypt was a source, a big source of triremes and ships that helped make up Persia's naval power on the Mediterranean. And as we've seen, Persia didn't have this power and these sources of ships inherent in the empire. She had to keep pulling them from some of the areas that she had conquered, which did actually border the Mediterranean. If you'll recall, Ships from Egypt played big roles in most of the major naval battles that we have witnessed thus far when Persia clashed with Greece around the Mediterranean and the Aegean. So, Persia at this stage, having already been repelled from Greece and from Asia Minor for the most part, she really couldn't afford to lose Egypt too. Here then, we can begin to see why a large army would have been sent down there to expel the Greeks and to stop the rebellion. Many of these same reasons, though, are probably why Greece thought that it was worth the risk to get involved down in Egypt against Persia, and agricultural wealth was probably the chief among the reasons, but taking away Persia's last big source of ships might have been another reason for the Greeks to get involved. We have also discussed that Greece had trade colonies and presence in places like Naucratis in Egypt. So while I didn't know a whole lot about this whole theater of conflict between Greece and Persia before I got into research for this episode, I think it all makes sense really in the broader context of history that we have discussed leading up to 454 BCE. Back to the story though. We read that Persia was pretty easily able to relieve the siege of the White Castle at Memphis, and then as the Greeks retreated back up the Nile, we assume in their ships, they were trapped on an island called Prosopitis, an island that was a river island lying on an eastern branch of the Nile in the river's delta, not too far from the Mediterranean, but far enough that the Delian League ships were not able to break free. We read from Thucydides that this siege then lasted for a year and a half, and it was ended when Persia diverted a canal that had been built off of the Nile to turn that side of the island into dry land. 
The Delian League ships were then left high and dry, as one translation of Thucydides puts it, leading to the ruin of the League's Egyptian enterprise. Most of the Greeks that were under siege there were killed by the Persians. Although apparently a very small group survived by marching west across the Libyan desert all the way to Cyrene, which was a distance of about a thousand kilometers. The instigator of Egypt's rebellion, Inaros, was crucified by the Persians in the end, so it's really brutal stuff all around. Then, to cap things off, Thucydides tells us that a relieving squadron of 50 triremes from Athens had already set sail en route for Egypt to join the Greeks down there, an infusion of fresh blood, if you will. Not being aware of the fate of their brethren, though, they put to shore at the mouth of the Nile, and they were instantly enclosed by land troops on one side and then by a Phoenician navy that circled in behind them. Almost all 50 of their ships were lost, and Thucydides concludes the saga by saying, quote, Such was the end of the great expedition of the Athenians and their allies to Egypt. The real question for our purposes in the wider context of the Peloponnesian Wars is how many ships did the League and Athens lose in this Egyptian debacle, and what were the true consequences? It seems fairly clear with the roughly 50 ships that were lost at the very tail end of the entire debacle, we can say that for sure. These 50 were lost almost entirely. Otherwise, the general academic debate has centered upon whether the League truly would have had 200 ships in Egypt for the entire six-year length of their foray, or if there is perhaps more to the story that was just left unexamined by Thucydides. In my view, it seems almost certain that the second option is closer to the truth. Thucydides only puts the number of Delian League ships as 200, when he's describing that the ships first made their voyage from Cyprus down to Egypt in response to that initial call to join the rebellion in 460. Six years is a long time, though, and given the fact that Greece first laid siege to the citadel in Memphis and then was only later holed up on Prosopitis and subjected to a different siege there, it's valid to assume that probably not all 200 ships would have been left in Egypt for the six-year span where all those incidents took place. An article written by a historian named Eric Robinson, published in the University of California's journal Classical Antiquity, is the article that I have found to be the most enlightening. Sources are always going to be on the website in case you want to get lost in the weeds yourself, but as we wrap up today, I'll try to boil this all down to the salient points and arguments that he makes. A first revealing point involves the number of men that a force of 200 triremes would have actually required. The rough number for a fully manned trireme is 200 men, as we have talked about often on the podcast already. 200 triremes then equates to 40,000 men. And just hearing that number for me reveals how unlikely it was that Greece could have kept a force that large intact and supplied all the way down in Egypt for the entirety of a siege on Memphis, and then later as they were trapped on the island of Prosopitis for 18 months. There seems just no physical way that a force that large could have survived for that long, in either case, in either siege. But the reality is, too, that a force that large wouldn't just have been necessary, either. For me, that's the most important point. They just wouldn't have needed a force that large. And as we've seen, they had lots of other things to be worried about in other places. It seems much more reasonable to draw a conclusion that we're basically forced to draw on little basis other than logic. No direct evidence exists in any of the ancient sources to confirm what we assume here. But given the totality of the circumstances, 
it just makes sense that the Greeks would have only maintained a constant presence of 40 to 50 triremes in Egypt once that first season of the campaign had wound down. They won quick victories in 460 BCE, but once the siege settled in, 200 triremes would not have been needed or even useful, and they were no doubt put to use elsewhere or returned to their home ports for repair over the winter, the non-sailing season, in the eastern Mediterranean. I think, too, the somewhat tight geography of the Nile's delta branches and the canals built off of them, it also kind of dictates that 200 triremes would not have been needed there for an extended duration of time. Again, there is no direct evidence for drawing that conclusion outside of logical deduction based on geography, other occurring events in the Aegean and elsewhere, and also the nature of sieges and how they work. But I tend to agree with Robinson that it seems most likely that the League would have maintained 40 to 50 ships in Egypt each season, and they could easily have rotated these ships each season as needs required. All of that leads to a conclusion that still aligns with the assessment of Thucydides, and that is an important element. The League and Athens could have lost up to 100 triremes in this ruinous year of 454, which may have included the loss of up to 20,000 men along with the loss of the ships. Losing all of this was not enough to trigger collapse of the League or of Athens, but it no doubt would have been the largest loss sustained by both entities up to that point, and it had to have been doubly impactful seeing that it occurred completely apart from the more direct and still escalating pressures applied by Sparta and the Peloponnesians. So then, disaster in Egypt was really the most momentous event to unfold in the 450s BCE, and that is despite the good fortunes that Athens and the League had gotten used to elsewhere. But, one major defeat like that would certainly be enough to temper any prior good fortunes. There isn't a whole lot else to add in conclusion today, other than two events. The first is what most historians label as the clear and simple point where the Delian League transformed into an Athenian empire. That is, following the defeat in Egypt and the unfolding events as regarding the Peloponnesians, Athens moved the treasury of the Delian League off the island of Delos. And big surprise, in 454-453, the riches of the League and all the plunder and tribute that had piled up was brought back to Athens. After that shift, several years later, Simon's ostracism ended. He had endured the entire ten-year duration of that exile and then one of his first acts upon returning to Athens in 451 was to help broker a truce between Athens and Sparta. Simon seems to have accepted the democratic reforms and the leadership of Pericles, although some historians argue that that's just because Pericles had become so powerful that Simon had no realistic alternative. Pericles himself was involved in some of the campaigns against the Peloponnesian League during the First Peloponnesian War, but we don't have many specific details about those beyond places and general outcomes. What we are then left with today is that in 451 BCE, Athens and Sparta and their respective leagues concluded a five-year truce. Athens and the Delian League had suffered a bloody setback because they tried to perhaps bite off more than they could chew against Persia's power in Egypt. But despite this setback, they had largely managed to shift alliances against Sparta and to win a series of victories in the Peloponnese otherwise. We have so much more to clean up in next episode's discussion, things that will though help us make sense of how this situation evolved into the Second Peloponnesian War, which is the war that is typically thought of when that term is used generally. The discussion today is really just a prelude to that conflict, 
and today's discussion doesn't have a tidy conclusion. Athens was bloodied, as we said, and in many ways the failures in Egypt and the emergence of an Athenian empire also led to members of the Delian League showing open opposition to the situation over and above what we have discussed in past episodes. Kagan refers to the time of the five-year truce between 451 and 446 BCE as the years of crisis in the Aegean. So we will do our best to unpack that and a whole lot more as we move forward. I also don't have a whole lot to add as we wrap up today. Just to say thank you as always for tuning in and supporting the podcast. A number of supporting members have joined the crew recently. So many thanks to David, to Ed, to Joe, to Dylan, and to anybody I might have overlooked for your step of offering your support. A new member episode will be hitting the Patreon and the supporter feed soon to discuss something that I mentioned in the last episode. That is the topic of how Simon and Athens used the mythology of Theseus to push the idea of Athenian maritime power in the 460s and the 450s. I think it'll be enlightening. Those types of topics are always personal favorites of mine. As always, crew, if you're able to leave an iTunes review or review on whatever podcast platform you tend to opt for, that is always helpful and appreciated even if you can't join the crew. Even though just sharing the podcast with a friend who you think might enjoy the material is also a huge help, and I appreciate those steps just as much as any other. Thank you for your continued interest and support in the podcast, everyone. And until next time, fair winds and following seas from me here at the Maritime History Podcast. If you like what you heard today, consider visiting the podcast website at maritimehistorypodcast.com. There you will find maps, transcripts, source lists, and explanatory images for each and every episode. Also, this podcast is free and independent, and the site has information about how you can join the crew and help support the podcast. As part of my thanks to you, crew members gain access to bonus episodes, a growing timeline, and early access to regular episodes. So consider joining the crew if you like what you've heard. Many thanks to those of you who have already joined up. Your support goes a long way toward keeping the podcast in ship shape. Thanks.